welcome to the Expeditors Podcast, where we look at the logistics and freight forwarding industry through the lens of a global logistics provider. I'm your host, Chris Parker, and today we are talking about the healthcare industry and its transformation over the last couple of years to account for a very different world and how that has affected the way companies produce and move their goods. Joining me today is Andrew Lester, our Global Director of the Healthcare Vertical. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Good morning, Chris. Thank you very much. Hey, so I know you and I have been... I would say frenemies would be the best word for the last couple of years, uh, but folks here may not know you. So I was wondering if you could walk me through your career with Expeditors and before and, you know, explain yourself a little bit. Right. Sure. Um, explain myself. That, that <laughs> might be a little, a little more difficult. But um, yeah, I'm hoping to settle a few things here. I, I'm, I'm used to hiding those. Um, so, so many years ago, I, I started off with a, uh, a UK domestic parcel company um, and then graduated onto their kind of very... Uh, young international arm uh, in mm-hmm. couriers, then moved to one of the bigger couriers and started focusing on the pharmaceutical industry um, on the UK market mm-hmm. uh, initially back in the 90s. Um, then moved to a freight forwarder, was a global account manager for a large multinational pharmaceutical company. Um, and then 20 years ago, uh, came to talk to expediters about uh, working here and at the time uh, there were no vertical industry management groups within expeditors and um, and i was the first one that was employed here started off as uh, i think i was called pharmaceutical sales manager for europe uh, then uh, healthcare industry manager for europe then industry manager email and then about nine years ago um, took over the global job um, when bob Koplowitz retired um, and I've been doing that ever since. So based here in the UK, um, looking at the healthcare industry from very much a, a, a global outlook um, and traveled all around the world dealing with it. It's uh, been a very interesting 20 years with this company. Yeah. yeah, especially the last couple too, I'm sure. Oh, yes. Yes, everything's turned upside down in many ways um, <laughs> and uh, has provided us some enormous and very much unprecedented um, challenges. It sounds like pharmaceuticals was part of your career from the get-go, it seems like. What about it really fascinated you? It is a very, very interesting industry to deal with. Um, obviously, it has a direct impact on each and every one of us um, uh, at some point in our lives. But also, it's an ever-changing and ever-challenging uh, industry to deal with. You know, We all know that medicine development has come a long way since we were children, um, since our parents were children. And we're always hearing stories about new wonder drugs moving into the future, new medical treatments, new medical devices, and so forth. And and the pace of change in that uh, over the last two and a half years has been phenomenal. Um, it, it's a little like, I suppose, the, the only analogy I could could bring is the development of, of weaponry in wartime. Yeah. You know, you have a massive imperative to bring these uh, products to uh, fruition much faster than you would normally because you're in a global healthcare crisis. So we've seen a, a huge development there. Um, the other thing I think is it's a very stable industry to deal with from a larger uh, uh, extent. It, it's something that isn't really impacted by economic downturns and upswings and so hmm. forth. It's, um, uh, it was never affected at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, except in a positive way. Sure. Once we figured out what was uh, what was possible. Um, so it, it's always changing. And I learn something new every day. 
you know, we're, we're, we're dealing with the pharmaceutical and medical industries. It's very interesting. Yeah, so, and actually, now that you've you've mentioned it, let's let's dive into today's topic. And with my first question here is, would you lay out and describe how the pandemic impacted the pharmaceutical and healthcare industries? Well, like all industries, right at the beginning of the pandemic in March of 2020, nobody really knew what the hell was going on. You know, it it, it was one minute uh, you're sitting there watching the TV news, thinking, "Oh, it'll never come over here. Don't worry about that." And then within three weeks, everybody was working from home, and so naturally, for, for every industry, it was, well, how on earth do we manage our logistics in this new environment, this untested environment that we'd never had to deal with before? But the one thing that we did know was that we would have to keep the medicines moving, especially as treatment started to be understood very, very quickly. In fact, one of the first things that everybody needed was uh, ventilators, right? Mm-hmm. Because that was what the worst effects of COVID were causing. People's breathing capacity was shutting down. So we needed a huge amount of ventilators. We had Formula One companies uh, who were obviously not able to race at the time, but they were putting this massive engineering brains trust that they had into developing new ways of filtering oxygen out of the air around us. Because again, the shortage of supply of bottled oxygen was starting to affect the provision of services to those in desperate need in hospital. So we were having to find out ways of moving product. Um, And then, of course, you had the massive scramble for PPE. And we discovered then over uh, many years that a lot of this low-cost product had been outsourced overseas, which is all well and good Mm -hmm. when you have a regular traffic of aircraft and ocean containers coming inbound into your country. But that got impacted. Uh, Absolutely, hugely, because there were no passengers flying Mm -hmm. because nobody was allowed to. The airlines were pretty much grounded. And how the hell were we going to move face masks that have traditionally been manufactured in China into the US, into the UK, into Germany, into France, into the hospitals that needed them? And there are no passengers paying for the vast majority of the costs on that aircraft. Mm -hmm. I think probably three, four years before the pandemic, there were some numbers released by IATA that said that around about 93% of global airline revenue came from passenger traffic. Wow. So you take that out of the equation all of a sudden, and what used to be 7% of the revenue is now having to pay the cost of an entire flight, otherwise that flight won't take off. Jeez. Yeah? <laughs> and it, it was phenomenal, um, the rapid impact. Um, and you, you see any of the economic graphs from that time, activity went through the floor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Subsequently, for those products that had to move, we were desperately trying to find space. That was the biggest problem. And and pharmaceutical companies and medical device companies were saying, well, I don't care how much it costs. It's got to be with that health service by Wednesday of next week or people Mm -hmm. are going to die. And when we had a particular situation when Indian airports were closed at one point, um, uh, a month or so after the beginning of the, the, the lockdown, where there was one drug which is manufactured to uh, relax the airways of uh, patients before they have um, before they're intubated, as it's called, you have a tube pushed down your your airway to enable a ventilator to work, mm-hmm. uh, possibly. And the vast majority of the manufacturer for that drug was in India. So we were on conference calls morning, noon, and night, trying to figure out how we were going to find space on aircraft out of India um, into Europe, into North America so that we could enable the treatment of people in desperate need. 
and, yeah. and it carried on. You know, there was a new treatment, a new wonder drug that was being um, talked about almost every week back then. You know, we had some people trying to figure out why you didn't coat your uh, airways with bleach to uh, prevent the development of such um, uh, viruses, um, all the way through to new drugs, that uh, anti-inflammatory drugs that had been used for an awful long time for other purposes, mm-hmm. which were now being investigated for the potential use to reduce inflammation in the lungs and so forth and, and help people get over the worst of the disease. It was a, a constantly changing time constantly mm-hmm. change and then of course you move in towards the development very rapid development of vaccines mm-hmm. that come along and we all know the big names that were involved in that. of course some of them were, were developing it with new technology some of them were developing it with old technology but new ways of using that technology and obviously we had seven and a half billion people around the world who if they were all to be fully protected would potentially need one or two or now even three doses of these vaccines to be moved. Uh, So there was some journalistic mathematics done at the time um, that figured out you would need 8,747 jumbo jets to move these vaccines around uh, in a very short space of time. And obviously there was never going to be the capacity to do that. Even in the real world, even even in 2019, we didn't have that many planes in the sky every week. Um, and uh, as it turned out, it wasn't quite the same way because very sensibly, a lot of the manufacturing organizations who were involved at the time took a very regional approach to their manufacturing. So mm-hmm. what we are going to be uh, delivering to hospitals and clinics in North America, we're going to manufacture in America. What we're going to be doing that within Europe, we're going to manufacture it in Europe. Um, and again, you know, it was the first time on major news organizations I'd heard the words temperature-controlled logistics used um, in a news broadcast. That was a new term for a lot of folks. <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. Uh, and, and, and all of a sudden, logistics became absolutely critical yeah. to the provision of these products to the end patient. For the first time, we, we started being treated as somebody who was integral to the planning of the delivery of these products as well. I think I've mentioned this one to you before, that that a lot of the pharmaceutical industry and medical industry logistics groups and ourselves as third-party logistics operators, all of us, are very much treated as the house painters who are asked in at the last minute. You know, oh, the house is built, the the, the tenants are coming in on Saturday, it's Thursday afternoon, let's phone the house painters and get them to get it all done by Saturday morning. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because it's never been viewed as a particularly complicated thing. It's, It's transport. How difficult can it be? Um, but when you're talking about temperature control, uh, when you're talking about good distribution practice, quality management mm-hmm. to support that uh, product being worthy of use when it arrives at a patient, um, it's a little more complex. And than, the scale, I imagine, too. Oh, it was it was monstrous. It was monstrous. Yeah. There were there were chartered aircraft flying all over the world at the time, and and again, this had exposed the running down of the freighter industry over the last probably 20 odd years where airlines had retired a lot of their freighters because they could make more money obviously with passengers mm-hmm. on board rather than uh, just pure freight and with no passengers you had passenger aircraft being converted to freight only aircraft you had right. cardboard boxes of ppe sitting on seats in aircraft uh, just to get them moving and and uh, some of those companies who had 
retained a small fleet or even a, a medium-sized fleet of freighter aircraft uh, were obviously able to provide more space than than many of the other ones. So yeah, there was a lot of balancing done in terms of who you were using as well at the time. So fast forward to now, and vaccines have already been out a couple of years. So yep. you know, it seems like the world is has been improving its conditions regarding COVID. Um, yep. So are we in a in a recovery phase right now? Has the like what is the current state of the pharmaceutical industry and their supply chains? There's still a long tail from COVID. There okay. is still. You know, the, I think the, the biggest lanes of pharmaceutical transport in the world prior to uh, the pandemic were probably the transatlantic ones. Um, and the transatlantic airline industry relies a lot on business class and first class passengers. Mm. And it's still not back up to the level. We used to have 53 flights a day from London to New York mm-hmm. um, pre-pandemic. I think we're running at something like 25 at the moment. Wow. So we're still way down on capacity. We'll see what happens now over the summer, but already um, major airports uh, have been saying to airlines, do not book any more passengers between now and September. Yeah, yeah. I just saw a headline today saying that Heathrow, I think, was capping at 100,000 passengers 100, for yeah, the day, they right? Would, they yeah. would normally, normally look at um, something like 125 to 130,000 passengers a day during peak. They said we're going to accept no more than 100,000 passengers because we still have people off work with COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, We still are seeing the after effects from redundancies and furloughs that happened within uh, the airline industry um, very early in the pandemic. And a lot of people have decided they don't want to go back to the old life that they had before. So it's still very, very constrained. Um, uh, However, after two years of completely upside down pricing, capacity being king uh, for all these guys, people paying outrageous amounts of money, to be honest, mm-hmm. in terms of what the cost was to move these their, their products. Um, people are now looking for some degree of stability so that they can actually budget uh, over the next six, nine, 12 months. You know, there was no point in anybody going out to bid during the depths of the pandemic because price per kilo could treble from one day to the next, depending on what the availability was and depending on what somebody else was prepared to pay to get that space as well. Now, I think most customers are saying, okay, as I said before, we, we can go back to the pub. We can go to a restaurant. We can go and, and have dinner with our friends in their houses. The world must be relatively back to normal. But they those same people are still not buying business class tickets from London to New York, from New York to Tokyo from from Seoul to Sydney. And so the airlines are still operating with constrained passenger revenue. Mm-hmm. And therefore, to keep the aircraft in the sky, there's still a big premium on cargo. Added to which the ocean industry has reached capacity through this whole process. And we're seeing a lot of ocean freight being converted to air freight because of the urgency of, yeah. you know, we've all heard the stories of of 20 and 30 cargo ships lined up outside Singapore port, lined up outside Long Beach in in Los Angeles and and so forth. Rotterdam too. And that hasn't gone away yet. It's a much more inelastic industry, uh, the ocean industry. To build an 18,000 TEU ship takes an awful lot longer than to build a 787. And uh, it'll be the same for some time yet. So there's a lot of pressure on on the air freight industry, which will continue to maintain 
somewhat artificial pricing for some time, I, I expect. But it, it, it's stability, I think, which is the key thing now. A lot of companies are looking at now breaking up rigid procurement uh, strategies that they may have had before. We, we have two providers, we have three providers, we fix the rates for two years, one year, some even asked for three years uh, before the pandemic. We, we manage it this way and this is what we do. And obviously through that pandemic, anything that was rigid struggled. <laughs> it didn't last very long. Yeah. No, it didn't. You know, it, it, was, it was very difficult. So, so yeah. there was more flexibility now needed in terms of the providers that you use, the airports potentially that you use, the airlines that you use, um, all to try and give us a slightly longer term view of where are we going to be at the beginning of 2023. Whereas pre-pandemic, people were asking for two years of fixed pricing. Nowadays, they know that's not necessarily going to happen. Uh, and anybody who tells you they will um, <laughs> is taking a bit of a chance. I think. Sure, sure. <laughs> As pharmaceutical companies and the healthcare industry as a whole was in this um, kind of state of suspended animation, now that they're coming out of it and looking to change up their strategies, uh, seek a little bit more flexibility, the stability, yeah, I guess, how has that forwarder changed in that time? That's a very good question. Um, the, the forwarding industry, should I say, mm-hmm. has had to deal with a, a much changed environment. Um, again, we're looking at capacity being important. We're looking at how smaller airports are making new offerings to the industry in terms of at one time being freighter specialist airports and now looking at building greater relationships with the airlines and therefore with the freight forwarding community. And it's then causing customers to think slightly differently about where they bring their product into. At one time, maybe it would have been, this is the airport that we want our product to fly into. And we only want to know about product coming in here, but there's an airport 50 miles down the road, which we could also use and has different, if not better, capacity um, and handling process. And so, no, no, I want to use this big, well-known airport. But again, you know, the pandemic has taught people that you need to be a little bit more flexible within the pharmaceutical industry and within those freight forwarders that serve that industry. We have to maintain the level of quality to ensure the product is never compromised in any way. Um, but it it brings more possibilities in, in terms of how we could actually move that product. And I think if we can get better forecasting as an industry, then we can plan better as an industry to offer the capacity at a more stable pricing for for those customers. Again, you know, I go back to the kind of house painters uh, analogy. If if we if we were more the interior designers right. and house painters, mm-hmm. Uh, working with those uh, customers to plan their their transport solutions, their logistics process, then I think we could bring more stability, both in terms of price and capacity, into the market. Yeah, uh, trying to get from that transactional relationship into something that's a lot more collaborative. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, and I think a lot of companies on our side in, in the freight industry and on the pharmaceutical industry have understood that it is something that is worthwhile doing and are going to build that longer term into their into their plans. Mm-hmm. Why, why the need for such rigidity in their original supply chain plans? Like what would a company be giving up by seeking flexibility? Well, it, the key thing, especially for pharmaceutical companies and medical device companies as well, is quality is key. Right? Of course. We, we must absolutely must maintain the quality of the product that we are offering to a patient 
in exactly the same condition from when it leaves the factory to when it arrives at the point of delivery to the patient. So therefore, what that tends to breed is an attitude that changes risk, and we want to minimize risk to the quality of that product. Mm -hmm. So the, the easy response to any suggestion is no, because then we know we're not changing anything, we're not risking anything, and there's no potential patient impact at the mm -hmm. end of that. I think now we're in a situation where people are starting to say, okay, perhaps no isn't always the right answer. <laughs> perhaps perhaps we need to start with why. Yeah, yeah, How? <laughs> that's a good start. <laughs> or, uh, or one of those other questions that generates a conversation rather than a blank door. Yeah, I think we're starting to see more uh, openness to that. We're still having, obviously, uh, to go through our due diligence to make sure that we, as 100% confident as we can be, that there will be no negative impact by changing the flow of the product. But I think companies in the medical industry are more open to the idea of change and flexibility than they were pre-pandemic. Mm -hmm. Now, when I'm thinking of pharmaceuticals, healthcare products, uh, consumer products, I'm thinking of the specialized researched um, medicines, right? And then yeah. there's yeah. like the Tylenol that I can get at yeah. my at my store, right? And so, yeah. but, so then that means that there's no one-size-fits-all approach to all these goods. So yeah. how has the industry changed to address that and get more flexibility between these two different kinds of products? Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, a, a mass produced generic drug uh, like ibuprofen or a paracetamol or something like that, the vast majority of, of supply of that these days comes out of low cost manufacturing countries. Um, and it's a low mm. margin product. Sure. Yeah. So why are you spending thousands and thousands on air freighting it around the world when you're not going to make those thousands and thousands back on selling it in the target or in a supermarket or right. wherever it may be. But again, logistic supply chains tend to have one train of thought. Um, and, and this is where we do this at X company. And well, we'll try and move that on ocean freight, but um, mm -hmm. otherwise we'll, we'll just have a, a single strategy. A number of the big companies, a number of companies have been thinking about this for a long time, but I think it may have accelerated the move towards divesting those consumer health, those over-the-counter, off-the-shelf uh, product lines into a standalone company, which would have a different logistics management philosophy from the pharmaceutical specialized side of the business, um, because they necessarily need it. You know, one's a very high-margin, high-risk high impact business um, on the specialized pharmaceutical side. And the other one's a low margin, over the counter, more of a day-to-day -day product. Which... It's a steady supply that doesn't need a specialized treatment. Absolutely. And some of these products have been manufactured for a hundred years. Paracetamol was discovered in about 1909, as far as my yeah. note serves me, but it's still being used every single day. Mm -hmm. And so the manufacturing of it is pretty much predictable, as long as there are no, no quality issues. So you can use more predictable supply chain management as well. Mm -hmm. With the, the real cutting edge development stuff, the exclusivity on the manufacturer of that will probably last only about eight, nine, 10 years by the time it's brought to market. Um, so you have very little time to recoup development costs for all that, not only that drug, but all the other drugs that fail to make it to market mm -hmm. uh, that money has been spent on. Um, so it's much more important never to miss a sale than it is to have a predictable process.
I think the, the analogy would be, you know, between the kind of the high-end haute couture fashion business and, and the fast fashion business. They're both clothes, right? Mm-hmm. They both right, right. keep you warm or modest or whatever you use them for. But um, <laughs> at the end of the day, there's a massive difference in totally. a, a Chanel uh, dress versus uh, something you buy from a, a store on your high street. So it, it to some extent, there is a, a similar kind of um, separation that we're seeing. Right, right. So then with this divestment of these consumer products, pharmaceuticals can pay special attention to how these uh, specialized products are being moved yeah. um, because they're still unstable in some way, I imagine. Exactly. They tend to, they tend to, tend to be more temperature sensitive than right, the right. products that have been around for many years because there's a lot more data on those products that we've been uh, manufacturing for 50 years than there is on something which is new to market. One of the reasons, and I'm sure many of the listeners would remember this, that a lot of the vaccines that were initially moved had to be moved at minus 60 or minus 70 degrees Celsius, uh, which is around about minus 95, minus 100 Fahrenheit. And that was because there, there was no history of the stability of this product if it was transported at normal room temperatures or just refrigerated or whatever. So the way to maintain the the structure of that vaccine was to have it as deep frozen as possible, which is a huge challenge then, of course, because, you know, aircraft do not refrigerate down to uh, minus 70 degrees Celsius, um, (laughs) despite what people may have seen on the little TV screen on the back of the seat in front of them. Um, It's (laughs) minus 75 outside the aircraft. But the only way to achieve that inside the aircraft is to open all the doors and windows and fly it at 35,000 feet. And obviously, <laughs> that's never going to happen. So <laughs> there was a lot of packaging being developed um, right, right. and a huge urgency in terms of the throughput of those products to get into the freezer farms that were being built uh, in various parts of the world to maintain the stability of that. Um, as time goes on, as stability data starts to be collected on this product, the transport conditions get less and less difficult. In fact, like I said, the the AstraZeneca vaccine used a well-known carrier kind of vaccine that had been around for a number of years, had been very thoroughly tested, um, originally developed as a vaccine for Ebola, um, but it was the delivery mechanism that that was very, very well understood. Subsequently, they could move that at normal refrigerated temperatures, plus two to plus eight degrees Celsius. So that was an awful lot easier to move. And that's why it's going to probably be the vaccine of choice for a lot of the lower income countries around the world, because naturally it's cheaper to develop because it's a well a well understood technology and cheaper to manufacture. And it's yeah, also cheaper yeah, to transport absolutely. as well. And the, and the equipment is more widely available too to reach that temperature range. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there are some trucks around that can maintain minus 60, minus 70, but they're very, very few and far between, Mm -hmm. and they're very expensive. If you can use refrigerated trucks, there's hundreds and thousands of those in every market that that can be used to to manage that part. So over the last couple of years, freight forwarders have gone through big changes and these learning curves, like you mentioned, but then also pharmaceuticals have changed a lot too, because some of them have divested themselves to not have to worry so much about their consumer products and just focus on specialized medicines. So, Which, by the way, you know, there's a particular supply chain approach that you, as you mentioned, you have to take for the specialized medicines, but there's also a particular supply chain approach that benefits the consumer health mm-hmm. uh, side of the business as well. So, so there are good reasons for both sides 
to to uh, have slightly different philosophies. And, yeah. and so to appease both of those philosophies, right, and to keep them yeah. both functioning, what does a company need to do to stay on track in terms of moving their products? You said forecasting, so I wanted to know, has forecasting been different for the pharmaceutical industry? Very much so. Um, first of all, the, the quality check that is done before release from manufacturing plants by pharmaceutical companies especially mm-hmm. is much, much deeper and much, much more far ranging than any retail product might be. You know, with a a retail product, you might take a sample of a garden chair off a production line once a day, once a week, Mm -hmm. whatever, Mm -hmm. and just stress test it and make sure it's doing what it's supposed to do. With the pharmaceuticals, that has to be done with every single batch, every single batch that is, is produced to make sure that every single batch of product, whether that means hourly testing, whether that means testing every half an hour, has to be done. And if anything fails, the whole lot fails. Wow. Right? And that means huge delays. So it's really critically important that those quality checks are passed by every batch of product coming off the production line. Mm-hmm. So that means that it's a little less predictable and a little more difficult to say, yep, the product will be ready Tuesday. So have the, the freight capacity ready on Wednesday when that quality check might hold it up for two days. You just no idea. Yeah, it could be ready Tuesday. It might be Friday. Sure. And, you know, in, in the environment that we've been working with, that's made it very difficult to book space reliably for, for customers. The other thing is that it tends to be a manufacturing-dominated industry okay. because the quality of the manufacturer is so important mm-hmm. to the, the product, whereas a lot of industries are more demand-led right. Right, in terms of, well, we want 100,000 units in this country at that distribution center on Wednesday of next week because we've got a big promotion starting on Saturday, Mm -hmm. whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. This is far, far more of a manufacturer. Oh, no, hold on. We're we're making this for the next three days. Then it's going to take us two days to change the uh, line over because we want to make four days of this afterwards. So then you tend to get situations where stocks are running low in, in country and the demand pattern escalates very, very rapidly. And so does the priority for the logistics. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a bit more of a juggling operation. The better companies in that industry could give a fairly reliable forecast a month ahead of time. Some of them couldn't even give you a weekly forecast. <laughs> Something tells me yeah. that a month still doesn't feel like enough time. Oh, it, it doesn't. It, it certainly, <laughs> in, in most other industries, it isn't. But in the pharmaceutical industry, especially, yeah. it's not bad, yeah. actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So yeah, it would be be looking, you know, back on what we've we've learned a bit. It it will be nice to think that at some point in the future, the logistics guys, both on the customer side and our side, Mm -hmm. are no longer just treated as the last minute house painters. Right. That people learn from their experiences working closer with their own logistics people and their third parties can give better outcomes in terms of the delivery of the product to the patient and and look at some more accurate forecasting, or at least recognize the fact that forecasting to your logistics group is actually a critical part of supplying to patients. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not always as simple as perhaps some people think. And if we could get those things going, maybe all three of them, we'd have a lot easier job and and deliver a lot more satisfactory performance um, as a a business, as an industry. As we're we're moving through this recovery phase for for the industry, um, what would you say that they're pushing for? Uh, What does stability look like? What does stability look like? Well, um, as I said, prior to the pandemic, people regularly would demand three years of price 
fixing with perhaps a quarterly mechanism to adjust pricing if anything went sideways. Mm -hmm. I think now customers are now saying, right, okay, we've been asking for one month price uh, stability up until now. Can you do three? Could you do six? Maybe even nine months. (laughs) You know, and I don't think I've had any conversations that involve anything more than probably six to nine months at the moment. Still not there. Uh, Still not there. No, it isn't. It yeah. is. I mean, do you know? Do you know what what the global logistics industry is going to be like this time next year? Nope. <laughs> Neither do I. Neither do I. You know, and and nobody does. And, yeah. that, and that's the problem. We're still feeling the tail mm-hmm. from the pandemic. Um, people are traveling away for holidays and stuff like that. Yeah. But mostly regionally. You know, Europe within Europe and the US within the US. Right. And we're still seeing vast problems at airports and baggage handlers and airlines and so forth because. They're not able to move those passengers. Uh, I was talking to a colleague of mine literally half an hour before um, we started to talk who had her holiday planned to leave tonight mm-hmm. and got an email from her airline this morning saying the flight is cancelled. Wow. Yeah. And that was a long haul uh, holiday. And I know numerous other people who've had similar things happen to them mm-hmm. uh, in the last few few weeks. And as you pointed out, you know, if a big airport like Heathrow is saying we're going to have to cut our passenger capacity by 25% to cope over the next uh, summer period, it's going to be affecting every airline around the world or every major airport around the world. In conversations with customers that you've worked with, uh, what would you say are the qualities uh, of a company that's really nailing it right now? Who is succeeding? What are they doing that sets them apart from others? Yeah, the ones who are prepared to have more of an open mind in terms of new ways of Routing their product, mm-hmm. uh, using different airports, perhaps, and different, slightly different processes from the ones they've always traditionally used in the past. Uh, those companies who also recognize that they have a part to play in the success of that logistics process as well. You know, in terms of provision of paperwork and making sure we've got the right import licenses and, if necessary, changing those import licenses if we're going to be using a different airport in some parts of the world. Um, and those people who are coming to us well ahead of time and say, right, we've got this thing coming along in six months' time. We need to start planning what our logistics process is going to be for that. I think that is planning for success. Mm-hmm. Whereas the last-minute approach always causes scrambling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, there's plenty of people in, in our industry who are very, very good at scrambling sure. because they're forced to be, because that's the way that, that things work. Everybody has had to scramble for the last two years. Mm-hmm. And it, it's really time to take a bit of a breath and start thinking about talking to our providers as far ahead of time as we possibly can. And probably more importantly, the manufacturing arms of the companies themselves, talking to their own logistics people months ahead of time, rather than saying, oh, by the way, we're releasing this next week for a launch. You mm-hmm. need to buy, you know, 150 ton of capacity into whichever country around the world. It, it does need to be thought of as part of the whole process of delivering to patients. And when we get that, when we, we gives us a huge amount better opportunity to improve and to impress. You know, there's a, there's a lot of good people in our industry who, when they're given the time and ability and, and leeway to think about how we could do things in a better way will bring some great ideas to the table. Absolutely. Uh, they need to be given the opportunity yeah. to do so. Otherwise, uh, if you're working in a last-minute fashion, then it'll just continue to be last-minute scrambling. No one is developing. No one is, absolutely. is changing and, and only, or, or, or improving themselves. Right. And, and the only thing you're doing by going out to tender or to bid 
is saying, right, this is what we do. Can you do it cheaper? Instead of saying, right, guys, we need to talk to a company who thinks about better ways of doing things, who thinks about uh, holistic ways of taking cost out of our entire process that we can also play a part in, which is critical as well, because Mm -hmm. what you don't want is a customer who says, we want to take cost out of our process, but oh, by the way, we're not going to do anything. Mm -hmm. We're not going to change. You You have to figure it all out for yourself. (laughs) Um, Again, you know, that's that's more back to the house painter idea. Right, right. but I also think I think looking, you know, at the way things are at the moment, sustainability is is uh, a big buzzword yeah. uh, in the industry. It is probably for all industries, but mm-hmm. um, you know, this is the one I I speak to, and and pretty much everybody's talking about it. Uh, not everybody understands it yet. How they measure it, how they uh, record their impact, and how they can manage that. Uh, moving forward, but certainly everybody wants to talk about it, which is a good thing, you know, for for our future, for our children's future, and for the future of the planet. But there's a lot of that sustainability, a lot of that carbon impact could be positively impacted if there was a bit more thought given to the whole logistics process. Beautifully said, Andrew. I think that is time for us. So I'd appreciate the time that we got to spend today to talk about this. I think you really opened up my eyes to how fascinating the the pharmaceutical industry is and also just how it moves and how it gets its products uh, to people. So thank you. As I said, I've I've never been bored in the 30 odd years that I've been dealing with it. And uh, and there are still many, many, many challenges ahead. It's uh, (laughs) a lot of work to be done. But uh, but thank you for... uh, for uh, some really good questions I thought today yeah, I uh, as well. and, uh, and hopefully people out there will find some of this enlightening. Yeah, I certainly hope so. All right. Thank you so much, Andrew. Okay, Chris. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you've got questions or want to learn more about today's topic, check out the show notes for more information. And before you go, make sure you're subscribed on whatever podcast app you're using so you won't miss the next episode. To learn more about Expediters, you can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or simply visit us at expediters.com. Take care, and I'll see you next time.